So we're talking about singleness today, and uh, we wanted to talk, there's a rumor out there that uh, may actually disqualify us from talking about singleness, and that rumor is that we're married. It's a vicious rumor. <laughs> it's also true, we're married. We are married, that is true. Actually, there was a rumor when we first got here that we were brother and sister. Um, and Derek, who was playing guitar, may have spread that rumor. We had a couple people come up to us, and I think it's just because we're Howleys, and we all look the same. But um, maybe that's what it was. But yeah, no one. So Pastor Ron asked us if we would talk about singleness. We kind of had that quick, like, Ron, you know we're married, right? But. He does. He knows. But also, I guess on staff, we're probably the most recently single people by about... By like two decades. Two, yeah. So two decades. I guess we are the most qualified. So we've still spent more of our life single than married. So we're, we're pretty qualified, right? Uh, we want to talk to you guys about being uh, single, about this issue of singleness. I don't know where you guys are at right now. Some of you guys are single. Some of you guys are widowed. Some of you guys are divorced. Um, some of you guys are currently married. Um, wherever you guys are at right now, I really think that this message, I, I got a ton out of just getting it ready for you guys this weekend. And so I, I hope that this is helpful for you guys. Uh, I want to start with a couple of statistics, which I thought super interesting. Um, in the 1950s, 20% of American adults, so people over the age of 18, 20% of those people were unmarried in the 1950s. That number has been climbing, and in 2014, unmarried people edged out married people. So now they're 51% of American adults are single. 51%, that's the majority. The majority of American adults are now single. I thought that, that statistic was really big. Um, and actually on Friday night, there was kind of a, like when I said that, people were like, oh, I can't believe, like, oh gosh, this, the, state of the, the state of the country, I can't believe people aren't getting married, you know? I thought that was kind of funny, and, um, and I think as a, our culture as a whole, right, we kind of value marriage, we value this idea of family, which is a good thing, it's a very good thing, that's biblical, um, but we, we've come to kind of have a really negative view of singleness. Um, I read this article in the Washington Post this week, and here's a quote from it, it says, romantic worry is a boon for the business that traffics in the mating, dating, and their attendant spending. So basically, part of what he's talking about in this article is that um, there's this idea of dissatisfaction with singleness and that the culture is actually pushing this idea that you need to be married, you need to find somebody, you need to have somebody. And this idea of romantic worry actually makes somebody money. So um, Tinder, how many of you guys know what Tinder is? Oh my gosh, really? You guys don't know what Tinder is? Okay, okay, Tinder is a dating site. So basically like an eHarmony, but not as good probably as eHarmony, but Tinder, there's, a, there's so many of them out there, but Tinder right now is worth $1.6 billion. $1.6 billion, it's a dating site. They have 58 million active monthly users. So 58 million Americans are using Tinder every month. I thought that was crazy. Here's another quote. It says, I am convinced that most discussions on singlehood should primarily be understood as the perpetual marketing and branding of our deepest fears. So basically he's saying a lot of the time when you hear about singleness in culture, what they're doing is they're playing up all your fears and your questions that you have about being single. Some of the questions he lists are, why do I often feel lonely? What is valuable about me? Is my life meaningful? Will I be remembered? Can I rely on anyone? Who will kiss me goodnight? And who loves me? I thought those were really penetrating questions, especially from a guy who's just writing an article in the Washington Post. 
So that's what the culture is kind of saying about singleness right now, right? It's really negative connotations to it. In the church, what are we saying about singleness? What's going on in the church in regards to single people? So I looked up this study, 500 single American adults in the church. They asked them this question. They said, do you feel, I don't know it by heart. Hold on. Here it is. Okay. Do you feel devalued like an outcast or in a lesser life stage because you're a single person at your church? 45% of singles answered yes. I thought that was an even worse statistic. That's an awful statistic. 45% feel devalued or like you're in a lesser life stage as part of the church. Here's some quotes that they left about that. They said, my life is not known to the church and I don't exist. Churches seem more family-oriented, and I felt unimportant as a single person. I feel like part of a mystery group that my church doesn't know how to minister to or support well. I think this is often manifest in subtle ways, not having support systems in place, not having single people who can pour into my life, not feeling understood because most or all the pastors are married, and not being included in examples such as church illustrations about spouses and children. So even in the church, you know, whether we've We've really meant to or not, and I'm sure that we haven't, but single people feel this way. They feel like church doesn't get me. They don't understand me, and I think sometimes even in the church we have kind of a negative view of singleness. I found a really cool quote, though, from John MacArthur. John MacArthur, MacArthur says this about being single. He says, and I would suggest to you with no fear of contradiction that the most miserable people in the world are not single. Right? Amen, married folks. <laughs> Ouch. All right. <laughs> So we get a bad view of singleness from the culture. We get a bad view of singleness in the church. I think part of that is just our culture seeping into the church. I mean, the, the truth of the matter is, is that we have a bunch of different people from a bunch of different backgrounds, even in our church, let alone the worldwide church. One of my favorite parts about our church is that we do. We have people from Samoa, from, from Japan, China, all over the world. And that's a great, great thing. Um, but also that means we have very different backgrounds and very different views. And we have to appeal to a higher culture, the kingdom culture that we see in Scripture. And that's really hard to do. Um, but I think it's also, it's important. So pe married people who have maybe fallen asleep, it matters what you think about singleness. It matters what you think about single people. And it matters not only what you think, but what you show. Sometimes I think we, we believe that we believe something. But children would know. Sometimes your mom says one thing, but you can tell from her face she has something. And I think sometimes the church is that way too. We're like, yeah, we like single people. Hmm. You know what I mean? Or if, like, Paul came into our church one day, we'd be like, what's wrong with Paul? I think he's socially awkward or something. You know what I mean? We need to get Paul out there. But it matters what we think about single people because it's 51% of our population. That matters. And not only that, but our response to the LGBT community was, I think many of us feel love for the LGBT community, but you know what they received? They feel like we hate them. They feel like God hates them. You know why? Because some people put that on signs and picketed. And so the thing that they, the perception they have is that the church hates them. Well, that's not scriptural. That's not a kingdom culture response. So it matters what we think and that we're united in what the Bible says about people. I think even our response to singleness matters to the LGBT community. Because what we would say is people who suffer with same-sex attraction, an answer would be to remain single. But if we continue to paint single people as like second-class citizens, that's not much of an answer. It's like, hey, welcome to the church. You have to be single the rest of your life. Sorry about that. You know what I mean? We need, it matters what we think about singleness. But we need to look at Scripture. Let's look at Scripture. So in the Old Testament, um, a huge part of the promise of God is this idea of descendants, right? 
this idea that, that you know, in Genesis twenty two seventeen it says this. It says, um, I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number like stars in the sky and sand on the seashore. So to be single in this kind of culture where descendants are valued is not a good thing. And that's why so many things we look at in scripture that involve singleness or not having kids are so negative. Like if we look at barrenness, how often barrenness comes up in the Old Testament, we're kind of like, okay, why does this come up so much? Because it was a big deal to these women to not be able to have children. In scripture, a lot of times, if you were married to a man and he died, you would have to marry his brother. And we're kind of like, why in the world? I don't want to marry my brother-in-law. But the reason was, is it was not a good thing to be single. It was really seen as, as a bad thing. Another example of this is genealogies. Have you ever noticed how many genealogies there are in Scripture? Maybe if you've skipped them. You're like, beginning of Matthew, moving on. You know, I was taking some kids to the, through Matthew, and they were like, what in the world is this genealogy bit about? But if, if your descendants are a part of your promise from God, you're going to keep track of them. So we see that our thoughts are really deeply rooted in the Old Testament. And sometimes we think, well, that's just the attitude that we should have. But we need to understand that we need to look at Scripture through the correct context. A lot of times people struggle when they first start looking at Scripture, right? We look at the Old Testament, we're like, why is God so mad in the Old Testament? And he suddenly gets happy in the New Testament. And that's not the correct interpretation. What we need to realize is that at the middle of Scripture, not the literal middle because the Old Testament's longer, but there's Jesus. And not only is he the crux of history, right? Because we see B.C. before Christ, but he's also the crux of Scripture, and when he comes, he says, I didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. I've come to fulfill it. And he changes the interpretation for the, what the people had said, right? He changes our interpretation of marriage, of divorce, of what adultery is, right? It's not just when you commit the physical act, but when in your mind you think a lustful thought. He changes what we think about worship, right? He says it doesn't matter where you worship, which would have totally blown, you know, Jewish people's minds. It would have been like, what? That's the only thing that matters, he come and he changes everything. One of the things he changes is singleness. And we see this. It's not just like Jesus comes and he's this, it's net, we didn't know it was going to happen. What's amazing about scripture is that even in Isaiah, we see him pointing forward to this reality. So in Isaiah 53, 8, after, um, in Isaiah 53, we quoted a lot around um, Good Friday. It's where he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And then in 53, 8, it says this, unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. So outside of this context of these Jewish people where your descendants are what mattered, we're kind of like, we skip over that. But to them, it would have been a huge deal. That genealogy in Matthew, it would have ended with Jesus, and that was a big deal to the Jewish people. But then it goes on, and this is where everything changes. In 53.10, it says this. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. So despite what Dan Brown in the Da Vinci Code tells us, Jesus didn't have any kids. Um, and that would have been a big deal. But what he says is that something changed. Because God says, despite this, he will have many descendants. And if you didn't know this, that's us. We are the descendants of Christ. Because of his righteousness passed on to us, we are children of God. But that doesn't just apply to Jesus. 
so many awesome things that, that Jesus set as a precedent apply to us as well. And that's one of the things in Isaiah 54, the very next chapter, it says this, Sing, O childless woman, you who have never given birth. Break into loud and joyful song, O Jerusalem, you who have never been in labor. For the desolate woman now has more children than the woman who lives with her husband, says the Lord. So barrenness is a huge issue. What, what God's saying now is that barren women sing. And that's incredible that they would be able to sing. Because can you imagine? I just imagine the word barrenness being spoken as a whisper in those days because of what it meant. And even today, women who struggle with infertility, it is a huge thing. But now, he says, barren women sing because your promise is not cut short. You can share in the promise of an everlasting and a spiritual family. This is true of men, too. In Isaiah 56, just a few chapters later, it talks about eunuchs. And eunuchs were men who were castrated. So, um, but then later in Scripture, it says some become eunuchs by choice. And that means more just that you choose not to have children, um, not the other thing. But um, it says, don't let the eunuch say, I am a dried-up tree with no children and no future. So eunuchs, at one point, we're saying this, right? Because if you don't have children, you don't have a future. For this is what the Lord says, I will bless those eunuchs who keep my Sabbath days holy and who choose to do what pleases me and commit their lives to me. I will give them within the walls of my house a memorial and a name far greater than sons and daughters could give. For the name I give them is an everlasting one. That's amazing. So he's totally changing the promise, right? That it's not just based on your physical descendants. What he's saying is that there's come a time where um, the blessing of the people of God is no longer limited to the physical offspring of Israel, but it's a spiritual children that matters. So that means Gentiles. That's good news because most of us are not Jewish. We're welcome in. We can take part in this promise. It also means that there's a time when it's singerless is no longer the lesser, that they are equally a part of this promise that they can have spiritual children, that they can have family that goes on to heaven that outlasts the physical bonds of family. So when we see single people as lesser, it's unbiblical. It's not okay. Like I said, I think sometimes Paul would be, a bunch of aunties would be bothering Paul if he came to our, came to our church, trying to hook Paul up with somebody they know. But it's not lesser. Sometimes I think we see them as like caterpillars, you know? Like right now, you're just an ugly little caterpillar, but one day you'll be married and became a beautiful butterfly, you know? And we're almost like these Tinder sites. We kind of sell, instead of Jesus as this thing that's going to be your everlasting happiness, we're like, when you get married, then you'll finally be happy. And then some people get married and they're like, what is this? You know what I mean? Like they sold me a false bill of goods because it's, it's, not, it's not the everlasting thing. Marriage is not, but... Um. How many of you guys have ever had a relationship that was really meaningful to you, somebody that poured into your life, that invested in you, who was single? I have, I have, yeah. I, one of the most meaningful relationships in my life was a, a single person who took me under their wing and poured into my life. In the New Testament, we have lots of other examples of people who are single and are prominent in the faith. We have Paul, we, you know, we just talked about Paul, Jesus, obviously, um, so many other examples, elders in the churches, daughters of Philip, just these people that are so prominent in the church and they're not married. They chose not to marry or they didn't marry for whatever reason, and they're so prominent in our faith. I want to go over to 1 Corinthians. Um, 
1 Corinthians chapter 7 is kind of like the big passage that comes up if you're going to talk about singleness. Um, and I want to work through this passage a little bit with you guys. Are you guys doing okay? You stay, you're hanging with us? Okay. All right, here we go. So uh, 1 Corinthians 7, we're going to start in verse 25. When you get home today, by the way, read all of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 if you can muster it up because it is great and it's going to provide a lot more context to what we're talking about. But for now, uh, starting in verse 25, it says, Now regarding your question about the young women who are not yet married, I do not have a command for the Lord for them, but the Lord in his mercy has given me wisdom that can be trusted and I will share it with you. Because of the present crisis, I think it is best to remain as you are. If you have a wife, do not seek to end the marriage. If you do not have a wife, do not seek to get married. But if you do get married, it is not a sin. And if a young woman gets married, it is not a sin. However, those who get married at this time will have troubles, and I'm trying to spare you those problems. If we go back, it says because of the present crisis up there. Because of the present crisis. Uh, that term could also be translated because of the pressures of this life or the troubles of this life. And um, I don't think this was just a Corinthian thing. I don't think just in Corinth, wow, they had so many extra problems. It was just a terrible place. Or No, like we all have problems too, right? Honolulu, Hawaii right now, 2016, we've got some problems, right? He's saying because life is hard, because it's full of problems. He's also saying, and if you're married, you've been married, you know this. If you take two sinful, messed up people and you shove them together, and they're in the most intimate, close relationship you can ever have on this earth, what happens? It's like my problems plus his problems. It's like 2 plus 5 equals 597. You know, it's just like the math doesn't even add up. Problems are just exponential when you get married. I don't want you to be discouraged, though. You would look at us, and the reason we don't have any problems is because I don't have any. So it's kind of like zero times any number is zero. So don't compare. It's, it, I just want everyone to feel okay about that. That's why we don't have any. Yes, we are blessed, clearly. <laughs> anyway, but anyway, he says, uh, you're going to have trouble. I mean, amen, hallelujah. When you get married, he says, you're going to have even more trouble. If you're married in this room, amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord, right? You're going to have some more trouble. And he says, I'm trying to spare you these problems. I'm trying to spare you some problems here. Before I go on, I just want to say, there's some really strong words in what I'm going to say about singleness and marriage. And let me just say, in the context of the entire Bible, marriage is a very good thing. It's blessed by God, and God is in it. And so if you're married here today, let's just say, do not seek to end your marriage. So do not leave here and think, oh, I should have never gotten married. I knew it. That's not what we're saying, okay? Pastor Ron's going to come back, and everybody's like, hey, I'm newly single. You know? yeah. <laughs> what did you do? What did we do? We're going to get fired. So great. Um, but there's some strong words in here about singleness. And I think they're really important for us, so hang with me through them. So... Go over to Matthew 19, if you can, with me. And Jesus echoes what Paul is saying, or rather Paul probably echoes Jesus, but <clears throat> Jesus in this passage, the Pharisees come to him. They're always trying to jam him up with some really difficult question that they've come up with. Literally, they know, son of God, not really going to be fooled, not really going to look bad in front of other people, you know? And so they ask him this question, should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? So that... For just any reason. In this culture, you could divorce a woman. If you're a man, you can divorce a woman just by going, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. And she's on the street. Like, literally, she has nothing. Maybe if she's lucky, her dad's family will take her back. But other than that, she's just a destitute woman. She's going to have to beg or resort to other things. I mean, her life is looking bad at that point. She has no rights. This is the culture that we're, we're looking at, just so you know, when we're talking about this. 
Is it okay to divorce your wife for just any reason? And he says, haven't you read the scriptures? And he goes into this whole thing about how God sees marriage. He says, what two people have joined together, let no one, or what God has joined together, two people, let no one tear them apart. And he talks about how holy marriage is. And then they come back at him and they say, well, hold on. Moses said we could get divorced. And then he says this. Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God originally intended. And I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. That's, those are some harsh words, right? Those are, that's pretty strong language, especially you're in this room, you've been divorced maybe. I want you to know God's grace covers that and you're loved and God has a good plan for your life and I don't want you to be discouraged in any way, but this is how God views marriage. He takes a very strong stance on marriage. And just as some of us might be like, whoa, that was kind of strong there, Jesus, the disciples come to him. And this next passage that we've got is the disciples answer to him. The disciples said to him, if this is the case, it's better not to marry. That might be some of our responses too. Like, oh, I can't even get divorced. There's no way out. Oh my gosh, it's better not to get married. Oh, I'm in the NLT. NLT, yes. It's better not to marry. And then Jesus answers them. And I kind of expected some sort of, honestly, I'm reading this text this week, right? And I kind of expected the disciples to say that and Jesus say, you know, with God, everything's possible and marriage is good and God loves marriage. I kind of expected this whole thing. But actually what Jesus says is not everyone can accept this statement. Only those who God helps. Some are born as eunuchs. Some have been made eunuchs by others. And some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. That was pretty fast, but it's right there on the screen. Um, Let anyone accept this who can. Basically, the disciples say it's better not to marry. And Jesus says, yeah, you got it. You got it. If you can accept it. And he says not everybody can. He said those who God helps. Paul later says um, in a different place in Corinthians, he says, I have the grace on my life to remain single. If you can accept it, Jesus says, yeah, it's going to spare you a lot of problems. If we go back over to 1 Corinthians, I think, like I said, there's some really strong words in here about singleness. And I think it's hard for us to kind of wrap our minds around it sometimes. But I think the place from which Jesus and Paul are writing, they have a very, um, you know, where where you and I might look at it kind of right here, like, oh, I thought marriage was good, and I thought single, uh, you know, and we're kind of looking at it right here. I really feel like Paul and Jesus are kind of coming in from up here, and they're looking down on it, and they're, they kind of have a better view of all of it. They have a good perspective. And so I want to go over to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 29, and Paul says this, but let me say this, dear brothers and sisters, the time that remains is very short. So from now on, those with wives should not focus only on their marriage. Those who weep or who rejoice or who buy things should not be absorbed by their weeping or their joy or their possessions. Those who use the things of the world should not become attached to them. For this world as we know it will soon pass away. Will soon pass away. That In Greek, that right there is like this idea like you're rolling up a scroll, like you're getting to the end of the scroll. It's almost gone. The time is very short, he says. That term right there, for the world as we know it, another version would say, this world in its present form. Well, the present form of this world he listed above, weeping, rejoicing, possessions. He throws in marriage. Marriage is just a part of this world, something that's going to pass away. It's not forever. It's not eternal. It's just here. It's just now. What does Jesus say at different places? He says, you know, you don't understand that in heaven there will neither be marriage nor being given in marriage. Or he says our, our bodies in a different place. Paul says our bodies are not going to be like they are here. You don't understand. We're going to have new bodies. It's going to be a new place, a new heaven. So we don't understand. We don't understand 
how it's going to be when the physical, we, all we know is this physical life, right? All we know is the physical relationships that we have. I'm tied to Charlie in a physical relationship. I'm tied to my parents in a physical relationship. But when that goes away, when the world ends, when it's over, those things aren't going to last. And again, this is hard. We've grown up as marriage as this example, right, of, of a forever thing. And to realize that marriage is it's not forever. That there will come a time that it will pass away. And we read in Ephesians, right, where it talks about marriage is a, is a symbol, right, that the man represents Christ and, and the woman represents the church. And so we see it's like, well, wait, see, marriage is that example. But in reality, a single person has a wonderful understanding of these things because a single person can commit themselves wholly to Christ, right? Man or woman, they can be wholly committed to Christ, in a single person, we see that a husband is not necessary. A wife is not necessary, but Christ is necessary. Christ is forever. Same thing with the church. A single person can devote themselves to the church in a way that, that a married person just can't. We have a lot of stuff that, you know, married takes a lot, of, a lot of work. And so when we talk about marriage, a lot of times we like to talk about Genesis, right, where it says man should not be alone. And we think that marriage is that eternal answer but it's not the eternal answer is Christ and his church for loneliness. Like Lisette said, my relationship with her as my wife will pass away, but my relationship with her as a sister and in Christ will continue. My family, my, my dad, my mom, my brothers and sisters, we're going to be brothers and sisters in Christ long after we're no longer father and son. And again, this is really hard to think about, but it's, but it's really true. And so what we need to realize, it's not if you're single or if you're married. We're not trying to put one above the other, but both are good. It's what you invest in. Are you going to invest just completely in your marriage, something that is going to pass away? And you should invest some in your marriage. But are you also going to invest in Christ and in his church, those things that are going to continue on? Yeah, I just want to say, you know, when you're single, I, I was single three years ago, right? Um, a lot of your energy sometimes, especially I think if you're a young woman or a young man, a lot of your energy, your mental, emotional energy goes to who is that person? And I'm in this social situation. Oh, is it her? Is it him? Oh, my gosh, you know, maybe. And you, you spend a lot of time kind of spinning like that. And, um, man, I think, again, like we said at the beginning, right, there's an industry that wants you to think that singleness is the worst thing that's ever happened and ever could happen. And some of you guys are here and you're like, you know what, I, I really do kind of want to get married still. Well, that's okay. If that's a desire that's in your heart, I mean, that's great. And God is hopefully going to bless that. But don't waste the time that you have. Whatever season you're in right now, whatever, if you're married, if you're single, if you're divorced, if you're widowed, whatever, whatever season you're in right now, God has put you right here, right now. And he's placed you in a sphere of influence of people that need to know him, people that need you to pour into their lives. So if you're a single girl today, if you're in your 20s and all you can think about is, who is that guy? Man, do not waste the singleness that God has given you. Do not waste it. Pour out your life for the sake of the gospel. You should have young girls. If you're, you know, career age, you should have college girls with you all the time. You should be pouring into their life. If you're college age, you should have high school girls with you. And you're pouring into their life, and you're, you're showing them what it means to be a woman of God who follows God. If you're a man, same thing. If you're an older man and you're single right now, you should be pouring into younger men's lives. You should be pouring out your life for the sake of the gospel. It should not be a dismal existence. It is not. It's just not. And if you think that marriage is going to answer questions for you or fix you or whatever, no. It's, I mean, I've married. It doesn't. 
there's still all those questions. There's still all that stuff going on. I think what, what's really interesting is those questions at the beginning that we talked about, those marketing questions, how much they're pointed at the core of who we are. And what the marketing people want to tell you is that the answer to all these questions is behind door number one, and his name is Steve. You know what I mean? And it's just not true. We get there, and we're, and we're disappointed. And I want to look at those questions again, you know, because I really believe the answer is an eternal answer. And so that first question is, why do I often feel lonely? The reason you often feel lonely is because you were meant for a relationship with Christ and his church, the people of God that would last forever. That's the relationship you were meant for. This is just a shadow. What's valuable about me? Your value is that you're loved by God and he desires you as a treasured part of his church. That's why you're valuable. No man or woman could give you or tell you your true value in the way that God can. Is my life meaningful? The only meaning in this life comes from investment in those eternal things, right? Possessions, right? You could be on Tinder. You could, you know, get Netflix, which is another thing people go to, I think, to fill the hole of singleness. Or, you know what I mean? Try to buy stuff. That's all going to pass away. It's going to be rolled up like a scroll. Will I be remembered? I think one of the big things that comes about, even when we start getting older, is this idea of legacy. They want to leave a legacy here. Don't leave a legacy here. Because this, this place is getting rolled up like a scroll. Don't store up for yourself fame, treasure, or legacy in this life. Because God has a monument and a name for us that lasts longer than these things. That is more important than children, than sons and daughters, than just the legacy we leave here. Can I rely on anyone? Yes. The only person you can rely on fully is Christ and who loves me. And the answer to that is God is love. All love comes from God, and God is crazy about you. Yeah, and as we um, kind of shift our attention towards communion right now, um, the early church just had such a good picture of this. So many of the early church, when they came to Christ, they had left their families. They had left what they knew. Some of them had even left spouses who were no longer willing to be married to them because of their commitment to Christ, and they had left that. They had walked away, and they had gone, and they had plugged themselves into this church family, and they knew that this was eternal. They knew that this was what they were living for, was this eternal thing. There was a historian once who wrote that the blood of the martyrs ran ankle deep in the streets of Rome at different times, ankle deep in the streets of Rome. So when these Christians, these early Christians would come and they'd meet together over communion, they called it their love feast, actually, that's what they called it. And they would do things like the kiss of peace, which we used to make fun of in Bible college, but the kiss of peace was this um, acknowledgement that the Holy Spirit lives in me and the Holy Spirit lives in you and that is eternal. And that when we, you know, they would kiss each other, they would actually in the early church, and it wasn't weird back then, they would kiss each other on the lips and it was this idea that the Holy Spirit in me is also in you. We're together in this. And that it is eternal. This family that I have walked away from everything for and have plugged myself into, this is forever. So my relationship, this is true today, right? My relationship with Becky. My relationship with Becky is going to last just as long and be just as meaningful as my relationship to Charlie is. It's going to be eternal. It's going to be forever. And they were precious to each other. They would, they would hold each other and weep because they knew that this may be the last time they saw each other in this world, but it would not be the last time that they would be together for eternity. And that's a, and that's a huge spiritual truth and a spiritual reality that we don't often live in. So I want us today, as the ushers are going to go and prepare to give us the elements of communion, um, as we go into this time of communion, I want us to 
you know, sometimes I think we play really quiet music and we try and not look at anyone and keep our eyes down and, and that's okay. But today I want us to look around. These are the eternal relationships that are going to last into heaven. These are the people that should be precious to you as your own family because these are the eternal people, the eternal things that are going to go with us into eternity. So look around today. Notice each other. Know that you guys are precious to each other. You should be precious to each other as you only can in the family of God.